Hello and welcome to the 905 podcast. I'm Roland Tanner. I am Joel McLeod. Today we have our latest and final interview with a candidate for the leadership of the Ontario Liberal Party, Dr. Adil Shamji. Over the last two months, we've had sit-down conversations with every candidate in the race. And while, yes, our interview with Bonnie Crumbie was actually before she announced she was running for the leadership, we're going to include that in the series. Well, we invited her back and she declined a second interview so quickly after the first, so the first one will have to do. It's worth repeating as we reach the end of the series that these candidate interviews are something we aim to do for any of the major provincial parties whenever they go through a leadership election. If it seems like an awful lot of coverage for one party, well, yes, that's certainly true. But it just so happens that the Ontario Liberals are the only party with a contested leadership election to be held since the last provincial election. We invited the NDP leader Marit Stiles to appear on the podcast earlier this year when she became leader and would have invited all NDP candidates if there had been more than one. Naturally, our invitation still stands. And let's face it, any time Premier Ford wants to jump onto Zoom to speak to us, we'll be here and ready for an interesting conversation. But back to our interview today. Dr. Adil Shamji is MPP for Don Valley East a riding he won just over a year ago at the 2022 provincial election. Since entering the legislature, he has been appointed Liberal Critic for Health, Northern Development and Indigenous Affairs and Colleges and Universities. Prior to entering politics, he put his medical qualifications to work both in Indigenous reserves across Canada and in homeless shelters in Toronto, as well as working on the academic faculty at the School of Medicine in the University of Toronto. Welcome, uh, Dr. Adil Shamji, uh, to the 905er podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you. And uh, where well, we appreciate that we've um, been able to uh, speak to, within recent history, all the candidates, you're the latest of the, of the candidates to, to join us on the podcast in the OLP, Ontario Liberal Party uh, leadership race. Um, and... Uh, wide range of candidates uh, we, we've spoken to some perhaps very familiar faces if we're talking about uh, Bonnie Crombie someone who's been around in liberal circles for a long time um, you perhaps uh, are, are a newer face to, to many of our listeners um, you obviously have, have um, sort of taken over from Kathleen Wynne in her what was her riding for a very long time in uh, Don Valley East I believe um, and uh, Kathleen was uh, actually uh, Kathleen was actually Don Valley West Oh, so, I, apologize. Uh, I, I apologize. No, no, no. It's, it's totally okay. I just, I just want to make it clear to the listeners that I know the writing that, I, that, that, that I represent. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> well, my, my writing was previously represented by Michael Coto. Ah, uh, right. Of course, of course. I, I apologize. My, my, my. Uh, <laughs> it sh- shows how uh, uh, a few years ago I would have been very much on top of that when I was involved in the in the, in the party itself, and now I am uh, no a problem. clueless podcaster. Um, but, um, <laughs> Uh, but a, a Toronto area MP, uh, relatively new, obviously, uh, uh, since uh, Michael Coteau uh, uh, stood down. Um, so perhaps you can sort of uh, uh, introduce yourself to, to an extent to our listeners and, and tell, tell us a, a bit about yourself. And, and of course, what, what made you decide to uh, throw your hat into the ring for the, uh, for the leadership race? Absolutely. And I just want to say thank you again so much for having me on this show. Um, you know, as uh, as you very kindly mentioned, uh, I have the honor of representing Don Valley East as a member of provincial parliament. Uh, 
by professional background, I, uh, I'm, I'm a family and emergency doctor, uh, have been for over 10 years. I'm still in clinical practice. Um, and, you know, I went into that profession because I genuinely wanted to help people. And ever since graduated, you know, I, I did my undergrad at Western in London, Ontario. I uh, went to medical school at U of T. And ever since finishing my, uh, uh, my medical training, I've gone to the communities that have needed help the most. Uh, I'm partially based at an ER in Toronto. Uh, but much of the last 10 years of my career has been spent outside of Toronto in rural and remote communities in uh, Ontario and throughout the Northwest Territories, uh, in many Indigenous communities. Again, all places that have needed help uh, the most. And what has been really clear, whether it's been an Indigenous community on the James Bay Coast, a rural community uh, you know, in Wyerton, or somewhere above the Arctic Circle where I've also worked, my patients have been sick because government and public policy is not working for them. And the, the traditional clinical tools of a prescription pad and a stethoscope weren't enough to address a crisis in housing, a crisis in cost of living, and you know, uh, and a grave threat to our environment uh, as we see the specter, the looming specter of climate change. And so, you know, to me, what was the point in treating an? I mean, of course, there's a point, but I never felt satisfied treating, for example, an indigenous suicidal young person with antidepressants and talk therapy if I was going to discharge them from hospital into the same homelessness, poverty, and intergenerational trauma that made them want to kill themselves in, in the first place. Lately, we've seen our province very literally on fire with, uh, you know, as we see climate change getting worse and unprecedented forest fires. And every time that happens, the emergency department fills up with people with their respiratory illnesses and asthma attacks. And I never felt equipped to make that bigger picture change. It's why I ran to be a member of provincial parliament. It's why I'm running to be leader of the Ontario Liberal Party and ultimately premier of our province, because in the toxic environment that is Queen's Park, we see partisanship and ideology getting in the way of genuine progress and genuine work for the people of Ontario. And ever since I've been elected, I've tried to take off the ideological blinders to not think in terms of left or right, but just to be sensible in the policy that I advocate for, which is why at various times I've been complimented by conservatives and complimented by the NDP and criticized by both sides either. It's because at various times they have important things to offer. And what ultimately matters is just the policies that, that work well for the people of Ontario. And I think that has been a critical ingredient for why I've been as successful as I have been as an MPP. I've written, uh, I have been one of the most productive opposition MPPs in terms of writing private members legislation, have talked to the media and the press almost every day that the ledge is in session, have launched a province-wide campaign to fight for health care, have been working hard to repair trust and relationships with their public sector unions. And in the space of a year as an MPP, have amassed more experience than many MPPs gain in a term or in their entire career. And I want to bring forward that um, that uh, sort of philosophy of leadership as an act of service, of working in the best interest of the people of Ontario, and certainly not out of any personal ambition or in any expectation of a quid pro quo. You know, I think to myself, why am I here as an MPP? Why am I running to be a leader of our party? Uh, you know, I've gone from the most trusted profession in healthcare to the least trusted profession, one in which I can earn to my full income potential and one in politics where I cannot, one in which I have virtually unlimited, uh, virtually unlimited um, job security as a physician to a career in which I face a, um, 
you know, a job interview with 100,000 people every four years. And for me, there's only one reason to do that. That's to fight for all of us and to represent the people of Ontario. It, it's funny that you bring that, that up because that kind of segues into my chain of thought on this. And a lot of people are going to ask, like, why, why would you want to do this? You know, being a doctor, um, you have a lot of professional respect being a doctor. Doctors are, are very, you know, you're not, you're not scraping by on doctor's salary. Um, and a doctor in, in Toronto is not, is not anything to be shy about. You know, what, what's going through your mind to say, well, I want to give all that up and go into the quagmire that is, uh, that is provincial politics. I mean, anyone who's been to Queens Park and has seen Question Period, you sit there and say, "My, like these are grown adults behaving this way. Why? Why do you want to do that?" Well, at the end of the day, medicine and politics, when they're practiced in the right way, is supposed to be about the same thing. It's about improving the lives and well-being of everyone around. I mean, the parallels are so close that you know, in the United Kingdom. A doctor's clinical practice is called a surgery. And so is a member of parliament office. It's also called a surgery. That's how closely intertwined they are. And at the end of the day, as I, you know, as I was sharing, I just want to help as many people as possible. And the question is, am I going to do it in an emergency department and where in the most industrious ER shift, I might help 20 or 30 people, or would I rather do it representing the people of Don Batley's helping a hundred thousand people or as leader of the liberal party or premier of our province, helping 15 million people at a time. What an incredible honor. And at the end of the day, if you look around, if you look at the makeup of our legislature, we have lots of lawyers, lots of economists, lots of business people, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I am the only physician in the legislature, which is perplexing when we consider the largest ministry in our government is healthcare. The largest line item in, in our government is healthcare. And ultimately, if we say that when you really boil things down, the role of government is to ensure and promote the well-being of everyone. Who better to do that than a physician? The, that's uh, that's okay. actually, sorry, Joe, jo, just jump in. That's quite astonishing. I'm just thinking, I mean, traditionally, there, there have been a lot of uh, uh, medical doctors, uh, physicians I, I, in legislatures. I am thinking my recent history, there was uh, Dr. Eric Hoskins was Minister of Health under the previous government. Uh, do you think there's any reason why 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 that has kind of dropped well, there, off? There is one other, uh, med- well, okay, I guess not physician. She, I believe, she's a, a nurse, but Natalie, um, Italia, uh, Dova, a, yes, yes, because she made it, there was a big point of when COVID hit, she went back into the ER to to help on the front lines during uh, during the pandemic. Um, so there there are there yeah. are medical professionals in. At least one other that I know of in the in the legislature. Yeah, uh, and 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 you're right. In fact, uh, I'm aware of two others. Greg Rickford is uh, is a nurse practitioner, but he's also a lawyer. And uh, and there is one other nurse. Those are probably the only three nurses in the entire province that think that Bill 124 is a good idea. Um, <laughs> but 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 I, you know, like I said, you know, we do need more healthcare representation. You'll note that none of those three nurses are are, you know, the Minister of Health or have a significant role in actually influencing health policy. Um, and, you know, again, like in the toxic environment that is that is Queen's Park, I question whether they're able to actually uh, have 
have an impact in influencing uh, health and, and social policy. And that's fundamentally the issue. That's why I'm not satisfied just being an MPP, because it's too easy in that Queen's Park environment to be drowned out by a populist leader who, who can you know, essentially put his fingers in his ears and do whatever he wants. Um, the opportunity to serve as leader and premier of our province is an opportunity to change the style of politics that we do, to make it consultative and collaborative, to listen. And, you know, as we noticed in the last provincial election, 57% of people didn't vote. That is unprecedented, uh, unprecedented apathy. We've never seen that before in our province. And I fundamentally believe that that is because people of Ontario think that politicians aren't working for each other, aren't working for Ontarians. They're caught up in partisanship. And as an emergency doctor, when someone's having a heart attack, there isn't a liberal or conservative or NDP way to treat it. There's just the right way and we bring a team together and we work together that is the style of politics that i was expecting when i came to queen's park which i'm not seeing and which i want to fight for and and i think i have the, the unique and perfect background in order to be able to inspire that i want to go back to something you said in your introduction that struck me and um it might not have struck our listeners but um the implication of what you were saying seemed significant to me, which was, you said, public policy is not working for people. Um, and, not, uh, and, and that could sound like a fairly dry statement, like, you know, a lot, many people don't know what, what's public policy, you know, but um, the implication you seem to make is, is, is that you felt, well, first of all, there's the point that, you know, public policy, much public policy goes back far further than 2018. You know, poverty, uh, uh, problems with, with um uh, people living in, in uh, uh, First Nations uh, reserves, uh, all these issues have very long histories. Um, if, if you're talking about taking on those things which, which seem to defeat government after government after government, what, what are you going to do differently that's going to suddenly turn these things around um, and make the kind of major change that seemed to be implied in your, your statement? Well, you know, I don't disagree with you. Many of the challenges that we face in healthcare, education, the environment have been a long time in the making. But that doesn't mean that we haven't been seeing progressive improvement. If we take the example of healthcare, uh, has healthcare ever been perfect? Well, no, it hasn't been. It's overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly complex. But the moment the Ford government took power in 2018, we've seen, and this has been uh, revealed in, in, you know, sort of secret Ontario health data that I've been revealing as an MPP, We've seen a sharp decline in healthcare system performance. We've seen the worst ER wait times in provincial history. Uh, you know, uh, the highest ambulance offload times, the longest uh, times for people to move from an emergency uh, uh, bed to an inpatient unit. These are new problems. These are predictable problems. And in fact, when I was treating patients in the emergency department during the pandemic, you know, when I say that public policy wasn't working, it's because I could see the Ford government actively and very and actively and predictably making decisions that we knew were going to make things more difficult. But ideologically, they were beholden to doing certain things, you know, uh, you know, either to, uh, you know, I suspect either to um, uh, appease donors or to pursue, you know, a, a private for-profit agenda, which has only become even more transparent uh, since the last provincial election. So, um, you know, I, I think while there have been problems that have been in the making, um, a lot of those problems have, acceler have accelerated and things have been moving, frankly, in the wrong direction ever since the Ford government came to power. 
And I think by being consultative and collaborative, by being humble in knowing that we don't have all of the answers and, and consulting with people who aren't just donors, <laughs> who aren't just the people who get invited to, you know, to, to fundraising barbecues, right? But actually talking to people who uh, are impacted by political decisions. You know, one of the things I've noticed and one of the, I hope one of the things I bring, which is unique, is that politicians see the world from 30,000 feet, communities, uh, riding, and individual people are aligned on a piece of paper. And yet for over 10 years, working in rural communities, indigenous communities, and in emergency departments, which are the leveling field for rich, poor, uh, you know, immigrant, refugee, and people who've been here for many generations, I've confronted the problems that we see. And, you know, fa- you know uh, uh, confronted them, uh, you know, face to face, which makes it impossible to do that. So, I mean, the first thing is I think I bring in, uh, you know, a scientific and evidence-based perspective that makes me driven to pursue truth and, and driven to pursue actual policies that work and to dismiss ideas that might fit within ideological categories, but actually don't work well for all of us. I think that, you know, I think those are a few things. And then I think amplifying the voices of people's who, who have traditionally not been heard. And in that category, I very concretely include the 57% of people that didn't vote. I think even of the debrief of the Liberal Party um, of the last provincial election, where uh, for, for those listeners who don't know, when we as Liberals asked ourselves, what did we do well? And, and most importantly, why did we do as poorly in the last election as we did? All we did was ask other Liberals, campaign managers and CFOs and that kind of thing. Fundamentally, what we didn't do is we didn't ask people who didn't vote liberal and even more importantly, people who didn't vote at all. And so um, that's that, you know, yeah. No, I, I just, I, I wanted, I kind of, were you talking about your strategy for, for developing the party and kind of reaching out to those unaffected voters. And I do want to kind of steer the conversation back towards that. And that there's something unique about your candidacy compared to your competitors. Uh, I find uh, for the OLP leadership is you're brand new to politics. You, you're jumping from the, a career in medicine into a career in politics. Whereas my, I'm going to say every other, all of your, your other contenders, whether it be a, a municipal, provincial, or federal level, they've all had some experience in that kind of political machinery, not just working in government, but also in the party politics, the, all that backroom stuff that happens that we all know happens uh, in, in party politics. You're brand new to this. And I want to know, do you view that as a hindrance, as a benefit, or as just something to deal with when you're talking about trying to rebuild the Ontario Liberal Party into a fighting force in Ontario politics? I see that as an absolute advantage. And so, you know, to be clear, uh, in the last year when I've been elected as an MPP, I have been one of seven uh, one of seven people in, in, you know, in our Liberal Party. Uh, there's a world in which I would have been thrilled to have had a single critic portfolio. Instead, I have four. Health, the largest one. Northern Development, Indigenous Affairs, and Colleges and Universities. Um, and then, you know, I've had to do every, everything that a career politician has to do without any of the extra funding, without any of the support staff or a research bureau or anything like that, which has presented an offer, and make no mistake about it, I wish that there were more liberal MPPs standing shoulder to shoulder with me, but it has forced me to learn almost everything that we have to do as a party. And, and so, you know, I've very quickly been able to uh, accumulate that, you know, a significant level of experience. 
But in no way do I feel as though I'm beholden to the old way of doing politics. In fact, coming into this, I was shocked at the way in which politics is conducted. For example, on my campaign, people would not tell me the things that I needed to hear for fear that it would discourage me. Well, that's not the way things are done. If I thought in an emergency department that my patient has a significant diagnosis like cancer, that's going to make them feel bad. So I'm not going to tell them so that they can, you know, that's not the way that we do things. That's one very concrete example of how, you know, if we don't have a good understanding of what's not working right now and ask very difficult questions so that we can appropriately problem solve, we're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. Uh, similarly, you know, for far too long, we as a party have relied upon, you know, in nominations, for example, reaching out to organizers and specific ethnic communities and, and to some people that, that has felt like a winning formula. And I'm not doing that. I'm trying to go for grassroots renewal. It's not a coincidence that my campaign slogan is for all of us because I want to represent all of us. And my strategy, which is not one that has typically been used in, you know, in previous nomination contests or leadership contests, isn't to sign up as many organizers as possible. It's to inspire people with good ideas, to inspire people with integrity, and to listen with compassion. And I think that's what's missing in politics this, these days. It's also why that, you know, I've resisted wading into uh, some of the, you know, squabbles that have been taking place between leadership candidates. Those are counterproductive. All they do is they pit leadership teams against one another and, um, and just convince the people of Ontario that we're just out for this in pursuit of political power, which is not it at all. I don't mind saying to the public, my loyalty to the party, which is, in my mind, loyalty to Ontarians, is greater than the loyalty to my campaign. I'm not going to do cheap tricks. I'm not going to, not going to put down other candidates in pursuit of my own victory. I guess, I, I mean, uh, sometimes during leadership campaigns, I mean, it, it, it pays to look like you're running for everybody in Ontario, but the actual electorate is Liberal, Ontario Liberal members. Uh, which is a far smaller group and a far uh, doesn't necessarily uh, reflect the the population entirely. You know, it's a self-selecting group of people who agree with certain ideas. And also, the thing that uh, you know, as as a former member, certainly preyed on my mind when I was in previous leadership elections was first question I ask is, can this person win? Uh, I mean, and by win, I mean can they? Uh, uh, can, can they win the, the first race of becoming leader? But having done that, are they going to be able to uh, uh, take us to the promised land in two years? Now, one of the other candidates we spoke to basically implied fairly strongly, I believe, that he wasn't, and I gave a part of it away there by saying he, uh, mm-hmm. he wasn't even looking for, for a win in, in, uh, in two years' time, but was looking past that to the, to the following election. Uh, is that kind of a view that, you agree with that, that this is a kind of building process to, for the future rather than, you know, actually about forming a government ASAP? <clears throat> uh, well, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that I worry about is that we're not ambitious enough. And so, you know, certainly is it, um, uh, is it going to be challenging to form government in the election? In the next election, it will be challenging. It's not impossible. And, and you know, we've seen the federal liberals go from third place to a majority government in, you know, in a single election. And so I certainly don't believe that anything is off the table. And I think someone coming with a, an entirely new style of politics 
that you know plays by an entirely different playbook um, is I think exactly the kind of refreshing um, uh, refreshing new way of doing things to inspire people to believe in government and democracy again. Uh, and I and as I mentioned a few times now, I genuinely believe that the key to our success is not in present. You know, it, uh, an, an integral part of this is presenting a viable alternative to Doug Ford. But we saw in the last election that despite all of his all of his flaws, all of the all of the balls that he dropped over his four years after 2018, that was not enough to motivate people to come out and vote him down. I think that by focusing absolutely hold his feet to the fire, do it even more than we did the last time. But we really need to get every single person out, every single person from across the province out to vote, out to believe that their voice matters. And I think that that perspective is enough of a game changer. They can dramatically uh, change future perspectives and, and future outcomes, uh, specifically in the next election in 2026. I absolutely believe and intend to fight for uh, us forming government in 2026. Do you, do you think MPPs should have, uh, so backbench MPPs in particular, should have more freedom than they've traditionally had? I mean, I, I know my experience, again, sort of working with uh, a sitting MPP uh, in the past was that, you know, uh, particularly while you're on the backbenches, you know, your job is to, to take a piece of paper that's handed to you by a, a staffer from the premier's office or from the leader's office and read it out. Uh, you have, or had in the past, extremely limited ability to 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 really express yourself in any significant way uh, as an individual uh, for your riding, which is ultimately who you're meant to be uh, representing and working for. Uh, and I, I feel very much of that, you know, people's expectations are like, I'm voting for you, you represent me, do your job, do it for me, not for your party. Uh, is that something that, that you, you agree with? Or I mean, I know, again, uh, at least one of the yeah. candidates has spoken to that kind of issue of, of freeing up uh, MP. Uh, uh, more to, to sort of pursue their own, uh, not pursue their own agendas, but um, uh, to be less constrained by the party whip. I mean, look, truthfully, that's, you know, as an elected MPP, that, that's actually all I've ever known. That is the style of leadership that our interim leader, John Fraser, emulates. And I think, you know, that's the only way to get good ideas on the table. That's the only way to convince, you know, to convince the electorate that their MPP stand up uh, you know, for something that is more than their own existence and actually stand up to fight for the people that they represent. I think that's really integral. Um, and, you know, it, it, I think it's just so important that we have, uh, you know, a, a good and strong exchange of, a, of ideas and, and a diversity of perspectives. And it's also one of the reasons I'm so thrilled that we have in total five exceptional leadership candidates in this Ontario Liberal Party race that do come from different backgrounds, that do uh, that do have different experiences and perspectives, and we genuinely need to hear them all. And I think the same is true of our backbenchers. Um, let's say, uh, you know, the, the, the cards fall as they should, the stars align, and you, you're on the A train to the top job in the province, which is, of course, the Premier's office. A lot of people in this, uh, listen to this podcast are going to want to know, okay, Adil, you, you have the top job, you have four years in office. What are you going to do to change Ontario? Where, where, where do your priorities lie to change, change Ontario in those four years that the people will give you? Well, you know, the three things that I've very clearly been hearing about as I've been 
uh, going moving across the province have been, uh, you know, the three priorities have been healthcare, housing, cost of living. I also think like in, you know, and all of those are crises right now. I do worry that faced with these crises, the other things that I've often heard about in the past, which I'm hearing about a little bit less often right now, are education and the environment. And so, I, you know, I, I will not be letting off the gas on, on either of those two additional issues as well. So, you know, those five, I, I would say, would be top of mind priorities. I, I've already put out a lot of my ideas and, and a lot of my policies that are actually quite concrete and detailed about what uh, government under my leadership would uh, would bring. For example, universally, whether rural or, or, or urban, there is a massive problem with access to health care. And, and it starts with the nearly two and a half million of us that don't have a family doctor. And so I put out my commitment to deliver a family doctor for every single person in Ontario. I know it's a bold claim, but I've articulated on my webpage exactly how we can accomplish that, how we can accomplish that within six years for about $875 million, which frankly is, um, it's a steal. It, that is, that would bring incredible savings. So I, you know, I think improving access to healthcare and specifically, uh, you know, a primary care team and a family doctor for every single person in our province will be, will be very essential. Uh, there's a lot of work very clearly that needs to be done around prioritizing housing. And when it comes to housing, I think we have to, I think we have to be willing to speak the hard truth. We have, you know, many people recently have been demonizing developers and to be fair, you know, uh, we can't let developers uh, unduly influence our politics or be able to do it just, you know, through, through donations. But we need to mobilize the nonprofit municipal and private sectors in order to build as many homes as possible. There are some quick fixes and some longer fixes. One quick fix that, you know, many people are unaware of is in Ontario, there are 330,000 development ready unbuilt housing units where the land is paid, the building permit is issued and people are speculating. And we need to do things like put expiry dates on those building permits so that those 330,000 homes, which are 20% of the way of our one and a half million, one and a half million home target in 10 years can be built right away. So uh, that increasing, uh, you know, increasing density, making sure that we have uh, rent control throughout the province and having definitions of affordability that actually work. I mean, the Ford government has defined affordability as 80% of, uh, of market value, which doesn't work when the gross average ho- household income in Ontario is about $60,000. So housing is a definite priority. Uh, cost of living in terms of gas, groceries, those kinds of things really need to be looked at and prioritized. Rent control is an essential part of that. Um, and then as it relates to education, uh, you know, right now we are not focusing on the education that counts. We have a $16 billion backlog in, in terms of deferred maintenance and infrastructure that needs to be addressed right away. Uh, we need to focus on the kind of education that counts, like uh, financial literacy um, and, uh, and, and you know, prioritizing the skilled trades while moving away from the stuff that's just a distraction, like EQAO testing that I'm hearing from parents, kids, teachers, literally everyone, that it is proving to be a distraction and is just causing, you know, teachers to teach to a test as opposed to the things that children need to, need, need to learn. And then finally, we need to have a genuine plan to fight for and defend our environment and prevent climate change. As you know, the Ford government seems to think that a plan to fight for the environment is build as many electric vehicles as possible. Well, you know, number one, that is not a plan to protect the environment. And number two, even that work, which is, which is important, 
you know, they're coming back five years later after all of the work that they did to dismantle EV infrastructure throughout the province and to reverse the, uh, you know, the interest in purchasing electric vehicles. So we need to be investing more in renewable energies, uh, you know, uh, wind and solar and that kind of thing, making sure that we're protecting our green belts. And to be explicit to the listeners, when I talk about protecting the green belt, I'm not just talking about uh, saying we'll protect the land, but we'll accept land swaps. Uh, no, the green belt is the green belt. It's untouchable. But we have to go further than that. You know, the green belt is class one and two uh, agricultural land, you know, the prime agricultural land. But there's other agricultural land that needs protection as well, and farmers that need support to be able to um, to be able to uh, 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 feed our province. So there's so much work. I would I would really bring it to sort of those five priorities. And yeah, as I've been articulating in my online housing, education, um, and uh, and healthcare policy, um, it's all there. And the concrete steps that we need to take and to make meaningful impacts rapidly. I've articulated them on my, on my website, joinadil.ca. So this is not talk from 30,000 feet. Well, um, just wanting to ch- challenge you slightly on, on the rent control story. Uh, I, I actually rent at the moment. So as a renter, I love rent control. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, not going not, not gonna to lie. It's nice to know that your rent isn't going to jump by a crazy amount. Um, but I've also spoken to people within, I mean, actually working on behalf of the renters, uh, in 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 the in the sort of the voluntary nonprofit sector, who've said, you know what, um, rent control looks great in 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 theory, but in practice, why would you be a, want to be a landlord if you can't? You know, it's it's a market like any other. The landlord needs to be able to, uh, you know, price things uh, in a way that that. that that encourage them to be a landlord in the first place. And if you have rent control, it's like, well, no, I'm, I'm just going to sell it privately or, you know, and we, we've seen the massive shortage of, of, of uh, uh, rent, rental accommodations. It's partly because, you know, you look at the stock, it was all bought, built in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, nothing since then, because everyone's yeah. like, well, why would I go into renting? It's, it's, there's no money in it. Uh, so, so, I mean, it, how, how would you address that kind of thing? If you, if you, I mean, we still have rent control right now, even under the Conservatives, but uh, I mean, how does that well, solve yeah. affordability? Yeah, and, and I totally echo the reservations that you've, uh, that you've articulated because rent control is a really challenging thing. On the one hand, we do want to make sure that we protect renters. On the other hand, we don't want to make it, you know, uh, we don't want to create an environment that is punitive against landlords. Uh, resulting in, you know, uh, runaway deferred maintenance in in safety issues. And then, of course, people not being interested in in investing in the renter's market. And you're right, 90% of rental housing stock was built in the 80s or before that. And we haven't seen anything afterwards. And so um, I think it really comes down to a few things. I mean, number one, we need to promote more development of rental and affordable properties. My housing plan actually articulates a few of the ways in which we do need to do that. Um, As a liberal, I did stand against the waiving of development charges across the board. And it is a major reason why we're seeing uh, increases in property taxes across the province. But I do actually believe that, you know, doing things like waiving development charges for rental and affordable housing and and for HST uh, charge towards rental and affordable housing, I think that is an important step that needs to be done in order to incentivize more of that kind of development. So again, I'm not unilaterally or ideologically opposed to these kinds of things. I just want them to work and to promote the right kinds of uh, housing in the right kind of areas. And as it relates to um, rent control uh, specifically, 
Um, that's another really important point as well. So um, the way I the way I address this is I actually do not articulate a specific number or a specific threshold of rent control in my policy. Instead, what I think we have to recognize is that across our province, we have different levels, uh, varying degrees of housing stress, low, medium, and high, different reasons in which we experience that kind of housing stress, either because of immigration, university, or college towns, and that kind of thing. And actually, in my housing policy, what I talk about is empowering municipalities and regions to come up with their own definition of affordability, their own definition of rent control, so that we can make sure that we avoid those kinds of unintended consequences. But what I can tell you does not work is discriminating against two classes of, of, of renters, those who live in apartments that were built before 2018 and those who live in apartments that were built afterwards. That is not fair. So a balanced approach that is consultative, not top-down the way the Ford government operates. One that takes into perspective the considerations of renters, but also of municipalities, the nonprofit and the private sector, I believe is the right way to go. And the way that may ultimately land is that not every region of the province will, for example, have the same, the same threshold of rent control. But it will ensure that things are affordable everywhere and that no one, including the small landlords who make rentals possible, none of, no one is left behind. You brought up a point there that actually I could actually expand on, which is about giving power to the municipalities to make their own decisions on on one specific case. In the example you just gave, I, I would certainly argue that you know in recent decades, and this again goes back multiple multiple governments, multiple parties. Uh, there's been a trend to take power away from municipalities and to centralise it, uh, basically under the, the the Ministry of Municipal Affairs. Um, uh, and, and I mean, certainly, you know, I'm showing my own opinions here, but my feeling is that this has been often a, neg- a bad thing. I understand the reasons why that the pressures that municipalities are under can sometimes make them you know, rather you know, short-sighted, and that, that can be a problem when you're trying to get things developed, and I totally get that perspective. But at the same point, local democracy is democracy, and, and we should let our communities decide. Do, do you... Do you feel that there, that there's a significant change that needs to needs to happen in in how the province relates to the municipalities, and kind of reversing that process of centralization? Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think it's uh, it's a coincidence that the old adage goes, "All politics is local." Um, you know, uh, this re- You know, I think that we. We need to be consultative and collaborative. And, and, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, politicians, certainly provincial and federal politicians, see the world from 30,000 feet, right? And those, you know, the the municipal councillors and the municipalities are confronting very unique challenges on the ground and know their their problems better than anyone. And so, you know, of of course, we need to to coordinate our efforts and, and there can be provincial goals like you know, I think it's very appropriate for the province to say that we want to build one and a half million homes in the next 10 years. I think that's an ambitious goal and it's up for the province. And, you know, certainly it would be it would be uh, an intention of my leadership to equip the municipalities to do everything in their power to help the province deliver on that. But I think a lot of it is about, you know, I fundamentally believe in leading with carrots, not with sticks. They should be something that is a last resort. And so, you know, what we've seen under the under the Ford government, especially has been a lack of consultation and and a top-down hierarchical approach that ultimately really 
doesn't work with many municipalities and in many cases is counterproductive. Um, I'm just going to say that we're coming up on our time uh, for the episode. So I think I'm going to have to wrap it up and call, call it a call it quits on, on this one, but th- thank you very much. Uh, uh, Dr. Adil uh, uh, Shramji for taking the time to come on. Uh, it's been enlightening, and I guess we'll say what we say to every contender on this uh, podcast. Best of luck to you, and uh, good luck to your future endeavors. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to spend this morning with you. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. <laughs> That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. Did Will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network.